Hello people, it's Callum from the Hustling With Houses podcast. Today we have Ryan Taylor on from RMT Properties. Very, very interesting podcast and very insightful. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you are listening on. It really helps us grow the podcast and get more guests on. Thanks very much and all the best. So, Ryan, welcome to the Hustling with Hazard podcast, mate. How's things with you today? Yeah, good. Thank you, mate. Thank you for having me. No problem. Thank you for coming on. So, for people who don't know who you are then, Ryan, who are you and and what is your core strategy? Yeah, sure. So, I'm Ryan Taylor um, and I think the best way of describing myself is uh, I'm a multiple business owner based in the northwest of England and I've chosen property as the vehicle of wealth for me and my investors. Um. I do that by investing in the UK supported living sector um, and house the most vulnerable members of society. Okay, I love that, mate. And obviously, you said you're a multiple business owner. Is that all all in property or do you have a few other businesses in in other things? Or uh, we've Me and my uh, partner share a female clothing brand. So I don't know if this goes out on video, but you can see boxes behind me. That's what all that is. So that's all the stock. Amazing. Um, so, yeah. How's that going? Yeah, good. I know it's a property podcast, but yeah, tough tough market for e-commerce. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a passion project for her more than anything. My my previous background was in uh, e-commerce operations and logistics in, in fashion. So um, I help on kind of logistics side. and Love it, mate. Absolutely love it. Love to see you. So with property then, what is it you do in property? So my primary strategy is social housing and supported living. So uh, we will primarily buy a residential property um, and turn it into a HMO or a minimo, sub six bed, non-article four, um, and lease it to a supported living or social housing provider with our primary exit, then selling that to a sophisticated investor on an investment yield. Yeah, yeah. Because I know, obviously, you're northwest. You're Manchester based, aren't you? Is it mostly Manchester, or is it all the northwest that you sort of covering with that? So I've dabbled in bits of the northwest, but I think in the last kind of year, I've realised my time is super important. And I did one in a, a place called Cleveland, just north of Blackpool, and it was taking me like an hour and forty to get there and then back. And it was just such a waste of my day and my time. And the deal ended up being a good one, but. I realized that I was just spending too much time traveling. So it is now primarily kind of within 30, 40 minutes of where I live in North Manchester. So that kind of extends up to um, Pendle, Burnley, Blackburn, and then down towards um, South Manchester. Yeah, all cracking areas and still relatively cheap compared to the mess, uh, the rest of the, the UK, like, isn't it? Yeah, that, that's why the supported living sector works quite well in those areas because um, – the, the purchase prices are quite low. Um, obviously, your yields can then be quite strong coming out the back of it. Um, the, the, the trade-off there is in those areas. It can get quite saturated with supported living and social housing providers. So you just need to make sure you have a wide base of providers to, to have those conversations with. Yeah. And I know we, we spoke briefly before about it, uh, supported living. It sounds like a great strategy for, for, for anyone. But the main thing is having the connections in 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 that sector, isn't it? Um, how how have you developed sort of the, the the connections in that? Is it just obviously networking and stuff like that? 
Yeah, great question. So when I uh, when I first left my job, I dabbled in a few different property strategies, and I didn't, quite frankly, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I did my first year, I did a flip, a single let, a social housing, HMO, a commercial to resit, and a service to accommodation. I literally just did everything. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and that's something I've really learned in the last kind of 12, 18 months that the, the most successful people that I knew had two things. One was a trading business uh, to supplement their development journey or property lifestyle, whatever it is, they have a cash flowing asset that sustains them. Whether that be, that could be rental income, it could be a landscaping business, it could be yeah. a trade that you can fall back on, whatever it is, they had that. And they also had a niche strategy. So it was, I do commercial to resi or I do HMOs. Uh, and that was kind of the trend that I saw. So the last 18 months, I um, really tried to focus on what my strategy was and I, I put it all into a melting pot and that's where supported living kind of came out. And to answer your question, um, the supported living social housing HMO that I did, I actually ended up doing it as a joint venture accidentally um, with someone. And I basically put this single let property in that I had. They, these guys were already doing this strategy of developing a property to a supported living or social housing provider and then selling it as a turnkey asset at the back end. Um, and that's the, they're the skills that we brought. I brought the property, they brought kind of the build and the exit connections. Um, and they've remained really good friends of mine um, over the, the kind of two years since. And they've helped me quite a lot. Um, I'm speaking to them. They've kind of given me a few pointers where to look for providers and all that type of stuff. So yeah, it's definitely come from my existing network, asking questions, being in being in property groups, not being too proud or too afraid to just drop a message in a WhatsApp group to say, I'm looking for supported living providers. Does anyone know of any? I found one just by putting that into a WhatsApp group and it ended up being a, a national charity. Got some fantastic rates on the back of it, uh, going into my, one of mine that we're doing at the moment. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that's it, mate. Sometimes it's just leaving your ego at the door, isn't it? And literally just asking the question and, and, and not being sort of, not ashamed, but just, just getting yourself out there and asking the questions and, and making making connections. But I can tell you've really got your niche nailed down um, from what, you, what you're doing. And I agree with the business thing as well. I, I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about, like, by the way, congratulations and going full-time in property. That's, that's amazing. That's that's spot on, mate. But I was listening to a podcast the other day and it was like um, talking about going full-time in property. Like you've obviously got a business on the side. Um, but when you are full-time in property, you know, sometimes there's not always a lot going on. So I, I definitely agree with having a cash flow in business is the perfect way. And whether that's in property or not, maybe a letting agent or, you know, a managing agent or something like that or being a project manager. But I definitely agree with the um, having a cash flow in business on the side because sometimes in property, there's a hell of a lot going on. And then sometimes there's not an awful lot going on. Like I mentioned to you before, I've got two illegals now and I'm kind of sort of in limbo, waiting for waiting for them to be ready. When they're ready and they're through, I'm going to be chock-a-block. But at the moment, I'm a bit all over the place just waiting. But um, how, how have you found running a business alongside property? Is that something, is it, has, it been, has it been, I imagine it is hard, but how have you found it? Yeah, I mean... To be, to be fair, that I've stepped into it's. I'm not going to take any. So, if my girlfriend listens to this, I'm not going to take any credit for anything that she does in the business. She is the heart and soul of that business. Um, she pushes social media. She's done it all by herself, and I'm just there as a kind of like a bit of a non-exec where 
if she needs any advice on stuff and any help with logistics and stuff that I'll jump in to help. Um, but in terms of running a business, it, it got, it, property is so tough. It's something that when I quit my job, I didn't actually appreciate how difficult property would be going in full time. Um, especially because my, I actually came into property with on a whim. I quit my job. I didn't have any cash flow behind me. I didn't have any properties behind me. I just fell out of love with my job. I got a new manager that I hated. I was miserable going in work and just over Christmas a few years ago, I just said, I'm going to quit. So yeah, going into property without any cash flow was super tough. Something that I didn't really realize at the start. Um, and I think it's overlooked how long it can take to build cash flow up in a business. It's taken me probably, I mean, I didn't take a salary for two years. It's only kind of been the last few months where I've been able to take a salary. Now, fortunately, I've been able to survive off um, savings and um, my partner. And don't get me wrong, we've done really well in terms of like, the assets that we have. If we sold it now, we'd do really well. But in terms of cash flow, it's something that I severely overlooked at the start. Um, and I wish I would have realized that kind of early doors. I agree. I completely agree, mate. I'm the exact same. If I sold all the assets I have, I'd be, I'd be comfy. But the problem is the assets I have bought are single lets. And now the, I was saying this to someone on the podcast the other day that um, when the rates are low, you kind of don't even think about the rates because it's just, it's, it, you just think, right, there's another property, 400 to 500 quid a month, happy days, a few of them, and I'm, I'm doing all right. But then the rates go up and all of a sudden, you sort of square for the month, and you're like, "Hang on, I've got about four, you know, I've got a few properties on the go, and I'm still not cash flowing much." And that's when I realised quite quickly that I had to go into the, the HMO market. But again, on what you said about um, it takes a while to build up cash flow, it's I've realised recently um, it's all about momentum as well. Like I'm four years in, and the past four years have been so slow for me. I don't know how they were for you when you first started, but they've been so slow. But now. It's really starting to pick up, and it's yeah, it's it's good, and it's it's, it's momentum, and I'm looking forward to this year, mate. Have you got yeah, much? Yeah. I, I think just touching on your point there with um, it, it takes a while to build up, and I I did this kind of on purpose. I know people can go into this and get cash flow straight away in terms of rent to rents, doing rent to HMOs, rent to SA, and kind of get cash flow quite quick. Now I knew that I didn't want to run rent to rent business i knew that from the start i wanted to be in property for the the long-term gains that are in it and i also knew that in terms of what i wanted out of life i wanted the time and the location freedom yeah and part of that for me is not being in the uk at some point in my life and, and working abroad and i didn't want to run a rent to rent business um so that was kind of a flaw in my strategy from the start where I wanted to kind of like the slow building strategy sort of thing where you get a single let cash flow three or four hundred pound a month. Well, I need 10 of them to, to survive and that's just to cover my expenses. That's not to, to live the life that I want. So I knew that there was a flaw in kind of that part of my strategy, but I knew that going in and we did a commercial to resi in year one and going back to what you said, yeah, it took a year to do. And it was a bit of a nightmare project. We overran on the budget. We overran on the time. And I ended up coming out of the project with a 4K loss. 
And at the end of the year, I was like, well, if I only had this one project on, I, I can't survive. So going back to what you said about having a few on the go at the same time, and uh, I had that same epiphany kind of at that point, I was like, well, it's only a problem to me now because I've only got one on. So I need 10 on. And if I've got 10 on, then that one's just a tenth of my problems. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, mate. And where did, did you have funds going into this? Like when you left a job, did you have funds or it was a case of raising investor finance? Because I know some people, they sort of fight better with the back on the ropes, if you like, where they quit the job and then it's go time. And I think I might be like that. I've, I've recently, recently quit at the same as you. I couldn't cope with it anymore. Nothing to do with the people there. Great people, but I just had enough of working and being employed and stuff like that and yeah do you think number one do you think you fight better with your back on the ropes quitting your job number two did you go into it with funds so i think everyone fights better when their backs are on the ropes i think people don't realize what they're capable of until they're backed into a corner and i think that's when that jeopardy comes in where you're like right if i don't do this i don't survive and I think it's innate within everybody that that jeopardy drives kind of what you want from life. So I totally agree with that. Having your back against the rope definitely pushes you on to do more, be better, do more than what everyone else is doing. Um, and then going back to the funds. So I did have funds. Um, so I sold my house. I was in a personal um, a personal property with six-figure equity in, in it that I kind of built up over the, the 12 years before where I bought a property, did it up, sold it, moved all that equity into the next one. I did that two or three times. And then I was in what I thought was my forever home. I was um, on the same street as my sister, about six doors down, really nice area of where I live. Um, four beds, but it was just me. So at the time, my uh, my partner was uh, working in Dubai. For She worked there for four years. We did long distance during COVID. Um, and she basically came home um, thinking that she was going to have a forever home me with a stable job that I've been in for the last 14 years. Um, and when she came back, there was none of that. I'd sold the house and I'd quit my job. Um, so yes, I had funds, um, but I mean, we got two down values on two properties and the funds were gone. So kind of working capital, they were mixed into all kinds of projects. So that equity is now sat in two projects. Fine, great. But I primarily had to do... Um, private investor finance so everything that i do now is private investor funded um all sourced through social media really yeah that's brilliant mate and obviously that was my next question how how did you come to to raise investor finance i know a lot of people listening that would be a, a sort of goal for them um was it mostly social media or yeah um so i think the first thing i'd say is you absolutely need to build social proof um because I mean, if you was going to hire a builder for your job, where would you go? You'd look on Instagram or Facebook. Let's look at the reviews. Let's look at the work they're doing. And it's exactly the same thing for an investor. If someone's going to give you £100,000, they need to know that you've got social proof, that you know what you're talking about, you're trustworthy. On my Instagram, I try and share the downs as well as the ups. I, I just mentioned there, I was totally honest about losing 4K on our first commercial to Reza. Um, and that came out of my pocket. So the investor still got a hundred percent of what I told him he would get. Um, he was really grateful for that. And the fact that I was open and honest and transparent throughout, um, has allowed us to progress onto other projects to, to the end where 
I've primarily worked on first charge basis. So they basically give me X amount of money. They get a first charge over the, the project uh, and they fund the purchase and the build. That's primarily how I've worked with this investor. But because of the trust that we've now built up, I've, I've convinced him to do second charge lending so then we can leverage kind of bridging finance at the same time, which then allows us to spread his money over multiple projects. And obviously there's less, there's more of a risk for him because he's gone from a first charge to a second charge. But the fact that I've been honest with him throughout and said to him, listen, it doesn't matter whether you're a first charge, a second charge or a 99th charge. My responsibility is to pay you your money back at the end of this. And he's really grateful of that. And since then, he's, we've now spread his one project funds over three. That's interesting, mate. Yeah, that's brilliant. And that, that makes a lot of sense if you can, if you've got the, if you've got the money rather than buy a cash, you know, get bridging involved and, and go for four, like you said, and you kind of, that, that was your philosophy obviously earlier. So, so by the sounds of it, apart from your own personal home and stuff like that, was your first project a commercial to Resi, was it? Um, my third. Third project. I think it was third, yes. So I did, um, I did a single let. I did the HMO that I told you about, and then I did commercial to Resi. Um, and the reason being is, I mean, firstly, I, I did fall into the, the trap, if, if I'm being totally honest. I fell into that trap of, I want to do the big glamorous things without actually sitting there thinking, okay, cash flow will sustain me. And then commercial Terezi will allow me to grow. Um, and in conjunction with that, when I did the single let, I was just bored of it. I just thought it's, it's boring, this single let. And I look back now and think, well, I need that foundation to actually allow me to keep going. Um, but at the time we did the project, I was like, this just bored me. So I want to do commercial Terezi. And I fell into the trap of following following the light, the bright lights and yeah, we've, we've, we've got a commercial to Resi on at the moment. Um, it's six and a half thousand square foot bank premises. Um, it's going to be four commercial units on a ground floor and eight as it currently sits, but we're looking to go up to maybe get another one or two levels. So could be kind of up to 15 units, but we'll probably be 11, eight, something like that. That's incredible, mate. What a what a what a deal that is. That's a biggie, isn't it? How, how have you found working with? I don't know if you've got this far in the deal yet, but how have you found working with sort of architects and and the planning and all that kind of stuff? How have you found that? I don't know if you've done that on the commercial to Resi. Imagine you did, but um, how have you found that kind of stuff? Yeah. So the first commercial to Resi we bought was basically turnkey, so it was already had planning. Uh, or it had permitted development. It was a class A, got class MA rights to go to a C3 dwelling. Um, and then in terms of this one, architects have been really lucky. It was a recommendation of me. He's he's done a really good job. We was really creative with the scheme. Um, it, it helps that I knew kind of what I was talking about as well. I'm in a mentorship group where um, it's solely for developers. It's called the Developers Club for anyone that wants to have a look at it. It's solely for developers, um, and you then kind of get an understanding of PD rights, what you're capable of, what you need to do, all that, the minimum size standards, all that, the basic stuff that you need to go into developments. It helps being able to drive those conversations with the architect 
Yeah. Um, Because when he first proposed, so I said to him, we need eight flats out of this to make it work. And when he proposed them back to me, they were all below 37 square meters. Mm. So if you was a novice, you might kind of then go, yeah, yeah, it's fine. The architect knows what he's doing. Um, But I was able to go back and say, no, these need to be 37 square meters or they're not going to get through planning. That's black or white. They need to be. So we went on site, was a bit creative with the spaces that we had. Um, And the other tip I'd actually give to people there is don't get your architects to do your planning permission submissions. And the reason I say that is because they're two different accreditations. One's a planner, one's an architect. They're two different things. And it's like if you've got the architect to submit the planning, it's like getting someone to mark their own homework. They're never going to say they're wrong. So you get the architect to do the drawings, get the planning consultant to have a look over those drawings and make tweaks to that to make sure that you're compliant when you're going into planning. And a a small example, one of the changes that the planning consultant got us to change was in all the drawings, they were double beds. But under 37, when a property is 37 square meters, which is the minimum, they have to be single occupancy. So he said, change the beds on that drawing from a double to a single because they could easily come back at planning and say, well, no, you've got a double bed there. So, uh, and that's just a small example of making sure that you've got the right people in the right seats to, to do your job. And it's something I didn't think about either, but having people on board um, obviously allows you to, to find those little little marginal gains. Yeah, that's a, that's a great tip, mate, because it's, like you say, if if you weren't to know, then, you know, what what could have happened there? And it could have been a bit of a disaster, couldn't it? Um, how have you found how have you found mentorship and stuff like that? Has that been massive to you? Because, you, you, you know, you know your stuff. Um, has that has that been a big part to you, to your sort of success recently? Yeah, so when I got into property, I, um, I, I'm not from a construction background. My mum um, still can't believe that I'm doing what I'm doing because I am terrible at anything DIY. I can't put shelves up, can't do anything, but my mum's very over the mindset, well, you need to be on the tools, you need to be a plaster and electrician to be a property developer, and I disagree. Um, so from the start, I knew I needed to expedite my network and um, my learnings, especially if I was quitting my job. I, I knew that I lived or died by this sword now. So I needed to get mentorship as quick as possible, really. So I probably spent, I've spent about £25,000 on mentorship in the last two or three years. Um, Can people do it without mentorship? Yeah, of course they can. But for me, I certainly wouldn't be where I am without it. And it certainly expedited um, my learnings, my knowledge, my understanding, my network, um, and I'm comfortable with that. I, and I property is a lonely game, and being part of groups where you're all supporting each other. Um, the developers club, for example, is only for people that's under forty, so you're all kind of of the same age, and it's nice to all be pushing the same direction and having similar conversations. Because I know there's there's this perception sometimes that people in property are old old men or whatever, and it's nice to surround yourself with with young, hungry um, talent that that wants to help solve the housing crisis just like I do. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so when people say to me, should I get a mentor? I mean, I, I think you should always have a mentor. Um, whether that's a property mentorship program is a different story. A mentor should always be that person that's like a non-exec to you that's 
someone that advises you on how to run your business or how to get to where they've got. Um, but of course you can go onto YouTube and for me, learning the property basics on YouTube is what I did during COVID. I, I probably spent a year, a year and a half just doing all the YouTube videos that everyone does. Um, and then went from there really. And then it was then when I joined a actual mentor, an annual mentorship group, um, where I really started to see the benefit of scaling and systemizing. Yeah. How, yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think a lot of the time, unless you pay for information, pay, paying for information sometimes, well, it does hold you accountable, I think. Um, I only learned that recently. I, I, I struggled. I really struggled to part with my money when it comes to education, to be honest. Um, I don't know how you felt letting go of 25 grand, but if you can see it in the, in the, in the sense like, like the question I'd like to ask is, would you be where you are now today without putting that 25 grand down to, I know it's over time and stuff like that, but would you be where you are now today without that money being put on education? I, I certainly don't think I would be. I think it's definitely expedited my knowledge, my learning, my understanding and being a, being a tight northerner, um, kind of similar to what you said there, of course, it's not it's not great seeing a thousand pound a month coming out of your bank as a direct debit. Of course, it isn't. Yeah. It's that's that's three times my mortgage, by the way, that, that comes out. And at the end of last year, I was renewing my mentorship for this second year. And at the end of the year, I did an exercise where I thought, OK, let's see the tangible benefits that I've got out of my mentorship last year, monetary wise. So I know that I've then made that back. So the two most basic examples is the commercial to Resi project. Now the, the, the bank project, um, that was passed over to me by my mentor. So he got past it, didn't like it because it's out of his patch, passed it over to me. I'm now doing that because he's passed it over to me. Um, as part of my group, you get assigned accountability partners. So every quarter you get a different accountability partner and you go to each other's sites and just kind of see what's going on and what they're doing and what they're up to and no agenda, just try and learn vicariously from the challenges that they've been through. Yeah. And at the time I was appraising this bank property and I couldn't get the, I couldn't get eight units in that I needed. So I was just ready to, to kind of push that under the, the table and be like, no, it doesn't work. I can't get enough units in. And I went to one of his sites and he just said something off the cuff, like, yeah, we're getting four one bedrooms there. And I said to him, I said, how are you getting four one beds there? And I can't get eight in a six and a half thousand square foot bank. I mean, it's four and a half thousand square foot developable area. The rest are already commercial units. But how can I not get eight units in there? From that, I then went away with my architect and that's where I got creative. I was like, okay, well, what can we do with that? What can we do with that? And that got us an extra, I think it was an extra three units three or four units, I can't remember, that's like three, 400 grand on our GDP. Yeah. So yes, I might have spent 10 grand in mentorship over the last 12 months, but that conversation, I got 300,000 pound on my GDP from it. Um, and it's it's those benefits that you don't necessarily see when you're parting with the money. It's only in hindsight when you look back and go, it's a good exercise to do for anyone that's part of a mentorship program to look back and go, okay, well, what have I got out of that network? Even if it's, okay, I'm a builder, and I got a client from that network who gave me a £10,000 job, for example. Yeah. I think it's a really good exercise for, for anyone. And 
Yeah. I, th- I think that's spot on, mate, and I think that's a great tip because, like you say, you don't know until it's done. But I, I genuinely believe it's I, I, obviously you need the right mentor, and that's that's for someone to do their own sort of due diligence on, if you like. But um, I'm the type of person that needs a mentor. I need to be held accountable and stuff like that. And I know some people think they're not, um, and they might not be. But for me, I, I need that. And and like you just said, then for even seeing even planning and stuff like that scares me. I know you can hire an architect, but it's still, it's still hearing what you're doing there is incredible, mate. You know, big big bank, so many apartments, whatever. I just think I think that's incredible, and I do believe. I don't even. I don't know the the network you're in, but I do believe that is you. You may not have been able to do that without that network because it's that's another level. And that was my next question: How was this, How is this project compared to your sort of HMOs? And obviously, your single that's a complete different kettle of fish. But your HMOs, what's what's the difference between this project and them sort of projects? Obviously, planning and stuff like that. Is there a lot more legwork in there? So the stage we're at at the moment is we are at, um, we're just about to submit planning for it. I see. Um, but I'll be honest, in terms of the process so far, it, it's I've enjoyed it. It's been, I'll touch wood, but it's been plain sailing. And I think that's partly because my skill set is being creative. I've always felt like I'm a creative person and working with the floor plans to try and squeeze an extra unit in here or there or looking at the project and going, okay, well, how can we maximise the revenue within that? And that's where my skill set lies, really. So I've really enjoyed doing that. It's the on-site stuff that um, is not my skill set. I, I don't I don't want to deal with builders. Um, with the HMOs, I hire a PM who facilitates all the subbies coming in. Um, so ask me that question again in about a year and I'll tell you how the build's gone. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you not one to deal with builders, mate. It's a it's a headache, isn't it? Um is that something you'll be doing sort of ongoing, using it using a PM sort of thing? Yeah, I think so. I think we've I've tried to self manage and like I say, it's not my skill set and the projects that I've self managed have always had issues with it and that's down to me. I totally accept that. Yeah. Um, it's just because that's not where my skill set is. Um so then I tried to get main contractors in. And they basically priced themselves out of the jobs, um, just because they were they were coming in at like double what I felt like I could deliver them for with subbies. Yeah. So I then found a middle ground of I hired a PM who just gets paid kind of a flat fee, yeah. um, and he then facilitates. Even I even nominated some of the trades. I was like, okay, here's my electrician, here's my plumber, yeah. here's my roofer, whatever. I just need you to manage the schedule. I even do the cost plan. I do the cost plan and I do the schedule. All I want him to be is a bum on a seat to be doing the phone calls, making sure someone's turning up on a Monday morning when they say they're going to turn up. Um, and then that allows me to do the stuff that firstly I enjoy and secondly the stuff that will allow me to scale my business, which for me is finding sites and finding money. They're the only two jobs that I want to be doing in my business within the next kind of 12, 24 months. Yeah. Do you know what, mate? That, that's, a re- that's a really, really good tip. I've never even thought of it like that, even though I know about project managers and, and stuff like that. I've never really thought of actually implementing a project manager. I know this sounds so silly and daft, but just, just the way you said that then, I've always thought, right, you either get a builder and you pay probably double the price or you manage the individual trades. And usually I thought, you know, the builder will, will do the sort of project managing. But getting the individual trades in and getting a project manager in there, 
that, that, that's a class. I, I, I imagine a lot of people know that, but for me, that's just blew my mind a little bit. I think it's a, a great tip that um, obviously a lot of people probably do that, but I've just never thought of it in that, in that light. Um, do you, how much do you think you save in terms of that? Obviously you save the headache for one. Is there a big saving in there compared to just getting a builder who project manages himself and then subbing stuff out? So for context, in the last HMO that we delivered, <clears throat> I think we ended up delivering it for about 55 all in. Um, and we received a quote pre-commencement from a main contractor at 87. Wow. So I'm, I'm not saying that I couldn't have maybe driven that down. I didn't even try and negotiate. So I'm not saying that's where we would have landed. And I didn't even bother trying to then get another two quotes because I was just like, you know what? I can do this for almost half the price. Yeah. Um, so we ended up delivering it for about 55. And my PM is great. He, What I like about him is I found someone that, is kind of a young um he's young he's coming off the tools himself he's a joiner by trade he's ambitious and he wants to scale a business and for him he wants to work with me because he thinks i can add value to him in terms of i don't know how to run his business or anything within property um but for me it allows me to be able to talk to someone that's a bit more permeable i can influence him i can say no, this is how I want it to operate because it helps me. Mm. And having that is absolutely invaluable for me because if you can you imagine going to someone that's, I don't know, maybe 50-year-old that's been in the building game for the last 30 years and trying to explain to him, this is how I want you to operate. I think most people would tell you to, to get stuffed. Yeah. Um, but the fact he's young, he's ambitious, and he's permeable, he allows me to have influence on him, which is is really important for me. Yeah, I think that's brilliant, mate. I think that's great. And I think, like, yeah, I completely agree. Um, going in there and, and to, I, I agree completely, especially in the northwest of England, you get some uh, some angry some angry trade. So I completely agree with that. But again, that, that's great. And you're not, you're not just paying for him to do the calls and stuff like that. You're paying for his expertise to know what, what comes first, what does this, what does that. So... I think that's amazing, mate, and it's definitely it's definitely given me a bit of a light bulb idea for my for my next projects because I'm the same. I can't stand I can't stand dealing with trades. To be honest, it, it has to be done, but it's it, it's just it's not even hard work. It's just sometimes the aggro that comes with it and and the quality, you know, checking quality and stuff like that. It can just be a bit of a nightmare. But for 2024, then Ryan, what what are some of your goals and plans, and what have you got on? Obviously, you've got this one. On at the moment, are your plans to get a few more? You pl- what? What are your plans? Yeah, so I've got some. I mean, I I have. I don't know if you can see. I have my goals and, and my screensaver on my phone, but um, I do that at the start of every year. I also find that a really useful thing to do. So yeah, I, I have some some capital profit goals. I have some cash flow goals, some education goals. Um, but I, I think the, the the most important thing for me over the next kind of three to five years is. Uh, I really want to scale and exit a business. So um, I've just set up a SAP design consultancy business. Um, so for those people that don't know, a SAP is basically a EPC for new builds and new properties or large extensions. And what it basically does is it reverse engineers your EPC. So you know when you're starting a development that you want an EPCA, for example, but how does the builder know what materials need to go into that project to make it an EPCA? 
And that's what your SAP design calc does. It basically reverse engineers your EPC and your materials to plumb out what needs to go into it. Mm. Um, so that'll be launched in, in the next month or so, I think. Nice, mate. About three, about three weeks. So I'm really looking forward to, to starting that. Um, and then we're going to kind of, the long-term aim of that is to scale that out into a bit of a compliance business as well. Mm. So in supported living, for example, you need to do lots of um, reports at the end of the project to make sure it's safe and compliant. You need to do a Legionella water test. You need to do an asbestos. You need to do a fire risk assessment. Um, and the aim for the business for them is to kind of be a one-stop shop for property compliance. Um, and that kind of goes back to when I did my commercial to resi. I had all these things that I needed to do at the end that are all part of building control sign-off, water calcs, extraction, um, Legionella, all this stuff that I had to do. And I had to go to like six, seven different people to do it. And for me, I was just, I didn't have the time for it. I was just like, I just want to give it to one person and say, right, do all those seven things for me and come back to me when they're done, please. And that's kind of what gave me the idea to do it. I think there's maybe a couple of people doing it out there at the moment, but yeah. I think the benefit that I have is I'm a developer first, so I understand what people want from yeah. from that type of service. So I think that's kind of a long-term exit. Um, and in terms of the, the next 12 months, I think cash flow is, is one of my biggest things. Um, I went 12 months ago, I had zero rent. Um, I've got that up now to, to nearly cover my previous salary. Um, and we're hoping to kind of do 150% on that as well this year. Um, so we're hoping to do 10 projects, um, six exits and four holds. Um, so yeah, yeah, we've got a block of flats in North Wales that is going to be serviced accommodation. That'll be my first step into, into SA that I'm looking forward to. Um, and then the rest of them are just mostly the supported living HMOs. Mm. I love that, mate, and I love the idea about the business. You've obviously, you've, you know the pain points, you've been through it, you, you've spotted the problem, and now you're trying to resolve it, so I love that. And um, so is it not, obviously, you're moving into, so obviously, northwest England and, 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 North, and North Wales is kind of neither here or there, isn't it? But obviously, you're looking to go into North Wales. What's, what's attracted that? Is that just a deal that you've seen and you thought it's a cracker, go for it, or...? What's, what's that? Yeah, I know this is contradictory to what I said at the start of the podcast, but I have always said that I'll go to the moon and back if the deal stacks. And it's if it's a unicorn, I'll go. And I was looking, I just wanted a block of flats. That's all I was looking for. And from where I live, I set a radius of 40 miles or 50 miles, whatever the most is on right move. And this just came up. It was in a it was in a place in North Wales that I used to go with with my family, so I knew it was a really good holiday destination. Um, I ran it through um, AirDNA, and it came up like with numbers that blew my mind. I was like, "Why has nobody bought this already?" Um, so yeah, that's the only reason I'm taking it. If there's a part of me that doesn't want to take it because it's so far away, but the numbers have just been they looked so great on paper that. I just don't feel like that I can turn it down. Yeah. And like you, like you say, mate, if the numbers work and North Northwest and North Wales is, is pretty much the, the same place, mate. You can get there in about 40 minutes, can't you? So it's 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 worth doing. But um, yeah, thank you for coming on, Ryan. It's been great, mate. I've really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, if anyone's looking to connect with you or drop you a message, where is the best place to, to contact you, Ryan? 
So the two best places to find me is um, LinkedIn, Ryan Taylor, and Instagram, RMT Property. That's Romeo Mike Tango Property. Um, yeah, looking to connect with anyone that I can help, um, help on their journey. I know I, I have had to lean on some people in the past to get their experiences. So anything I can do to help, then feel free to let me know. Spot on, mate. And just one last question for you. How's LinkedIn been for you? Are you quite active on there? Or I just, I'm always curious when people, because I don't think, again, I had this conversation with someone who was on previously, and I don't think many property people utilize LinkedIn as well as they should. What are your thoughts on that? Is it, is it, are you quite active on it? or I say quite active in the sense where I need to be more active. It's like any anyone I've spoke to in property or most people I've spoke to in property, they feel like social media is the thing that they can relax on most um, just because we've got so much to do. But yeah, I'm semi-active, could definitely be more active. And I think the reason I'm on it is, and this kind of goes back to my mentorship group. Uh, last year, we had a conversation of where is your avatar? So where does your avatar sit? If you're looking for someone that's, I don't know, I'm looking for someone that's got a million pound capital that can invest as an equity basis with me and we can build a social portfolio. That's what I'm looking for. Those are my requirements. So where is that person? Is that person going to be on TikTok? Probably not. Is that person going to be on, I don't know, what, threads? Probably not. Where's that person? He's probably going to be, or she, is going to be someone that's sold a business, maybe. It's going to be a professional. They might be a doctor. Doctors might not have a million pounds, but they might have a hundred thousand. So where are these people that have got money, but also don't have the time to invest in property? And the answer was LinkedIn, really, as well as a few other things like David Lloyd Jim, for example. Go to David Lloyd. Make sure you're part of that, and make sure you have conversations in the sauna with people without being a creep. Um, and <laughs> It's about just finding where your avatar is going to be and situate your brand around that. And for me, it was LinkedIn primarily. And then I, I kind of just continued to do Instagram for the social proof and to do the reels and the 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 videos of yourself talking about stuff. That's not really what LinkedIn wants to see. Yeah. LinkedIn kind of want to be a bit more professional with it, but you can still drive them to your Instagram from there. For, like, listen, if you need anything, if you want to see any of our previous projects, pop over to my LinkedIn. There's a few examples on there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's where it got driven from really, just finding where your avatar is and situating yourself there. And to the extent as well, I've even stopped going to property networking events. And I know that's a bit controversial for some people, but... And I just found myself going to these property events and I just ended up being spoken at by mortgage brokers, insurance brokers. No disrespect to anyone that's in that industry, because if I was you, I'd be going to those places as well. But for me, I wasn't finding what I wanted from those places. I was coming away from it with a lot of business cards of insurance brokers and mortgage brokers. But I already had an insurance broker, a mortgage broker and a commercial finance broker. So I didn't really need any of that. Mm. certainly not every week turning up um so as a result i stopped going and I, I kind of started going to more maybe business networking events where um people that are there maybe growing scaling exiting businesses um so yeah i've I, I found linkedin quite good in in terms of investment i've definitely had more fruit from linkedin than i yeah. have from instagram 
I think that's a really interesting take, mate. And I think your sort of self-awareness is is, is top level. Like, I, I think a lot of people, me included, not trying to slate anyone, but you can kind of get to a point where you're just posting on Instagram willy-nilly and there's no real sort of why or target, you know, there's no sort of targeted avatar, if you like, like you said, behind it. And I think um, that's why I think LinkedIn, I need to I need to get on there. I've, I've got, a, got a profile, but I don't really utilize it at all. And I think, like you said, you know, that's where, that's where people who are looking to invest are going to be. If, if most of the... It, most of the Instagram people that you've got are property people who are investing themselves. So it's good to showcase stuff. Um, I made for joint ventures. Again, I, I'm not really into joint ventures unless someone's willing to, you know, sort of repeat business. I'm not into the, I'm not into the sort of doing a limited company every 12 months and just, just for one project, I find it, I find it pointless. I want someone who's going to be willing to sort of do a five year thing and, and, and get into it. But, but yeah, does your, does your, Oh, and again, with you saying about your content changing for LinkedIn, I think that's a must as well. I think not because my my Instagram. If I put my Instagram content onto LinkedIn, I think I'll be getting slagged off in uh, in certain places. <laughs> yeah, and it's de- like you say, it's just different type of of content, isn't it? And I definitely need to get better at Instagram. I need to get better at. at- marketing social media i'm not very savvy i understand it and i understand the concepts of it but it's for me it's having having the time to consistently do it to the point where i was kind of looking at onboarding a a social media not a content creator as such but someone that creates me a content plan just to basically say like listen this is what you need to do every week to make sure you're being consistent and like you were saying before going back to the accountability thing having someone that says right here's your schedule I want you to do a post at 9am on Monday about, I don't know, the the biggest challenge that you had on your last project. Um, and I, I, just, I definitely need some something or someone to, to drive yeah. that for me, whether that's internal or external within the business. Yeah. I think that's a great idea and a great tip as well, because you don't always need, you know, an account manager or someone to actually take over your social media. Like you've just said, then if you can just get a plan, because there's a fine line as well. I spend a lot of time on Instagram now and, and you just, yeah, you don't want to be flicking through and, and, and creating content all the time. But I think, if, like you said, if you can get a plan together where if you post them once a day and you've got, like you said, Monday at 9 o'clock, post about this, Tuesday, this, that. I think I think that's a really, really good way to do it and a clever way to do it. But again... Yeah, definitely. And I think um, just going back to the social media um, being outsourced as well, it's something I considered. But for me, I, I, I want to retain the personal aspects. I don't want my LinkedIn or my Instagram to become non-personalized and a bit cold. I still want to have my personality in there. And if I outsource that to people, I mean, I've had messages from from people before and you can just tell it's a virtual assistant or, or a copied and paste message. And it just puts you off straight away. And it, if someone received that, that I was looking to invest with, that was me, I'd receive it and go, I'm not going to invest with you because you, you can't even do a personalized message to me. So I do want to retain that that personal aspect with it. Yeah, definitely. It's like um, when someone uses ChatGPT for a post, you can you can spot it a mile off, can't you? <laughs> Elevate your success or something like that with loads of emojis in. It's uh, it's band. But yeah, but again, mate, thank you so much for coming on and you, you, very insightful and, and very wise and, and very self aware. Some of the things you said has has struck a light bulb in my mind, and I'll definitely be imp- implementing. 
Um, even with that social media thing then that you said about having a planner rather than actual hiring someone because some of these social media managers not to say they're not worth it but they can be you know thousand pound fifteen hundred quid a month you mm-hmm. know you've got hmo that's sort of your profit gone in a month on a, on a social media manager i'm not again i'm not saying they're not worth it but if you can just get a plan you know how much is a plan going to be then you can stick to the plan um so again thank you so much for coming on mate it's been a pleasure and i've really enjoyed speaking to you no problem mate i've really enjoyed it Good. Happy days, mate. Well, let's stay in touch. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm over your way this week, so um, if you're about, we'll, we'll meet up for a coffee. Most definitely, mate. Please do. Please do. And again, thank you for coming on and, and all the best for 2024, mate. It'd be good to get you on later in the year and, and see where you're at with things. I'm sure you'll, you'll smash it. No problem, mate. Thank you for having me. All the best, Ryan. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye.